0: Greetings, listeners. Once again, it is Black Clock Audio Tales, week four, Jules Verne, Master of the World. And uh, this I, I, I tried to find episodes that uh, Ken Height recommended last week, but I couldn't find any of those, so I went with the sequel to uh, Robor the Conqueror. So that is Master of the World. And apparently you can listen to this without hearing the first one. And, it, you know, you, it's, it's uh, unnecessary. So don't worry about it. And, yeah. And as always, this, this episode is brought to you by Bunnyslippers.com and FoundItemClothing.com. Check out the new Highland Cow Slipper. If you like woolly things, if you like bully things, check out the Highland Cow Slipper. Also, all kinds of slippers they have available of all kinds of different animals and activities that people enjoy or food items, things like that. You'll you'll find it amazing. Bunnieslippers.com. Look for it in the show notes. And let's not forget all of the wonderful people who make this show possible besides Bunnieslippers.com. You! Yes, you! You can go to me slash pgttcm and donate five dollars to help keep the show going you can also go to the shop and get one of our t-shirts you can i don't know um tell your friends about it subscribe to it um rate it five stars on uh, whatever pod streaming service you listen to whether it be spotify or apple podcasts or stitcher or wherever you go i use podbean but that's me Thank you so much, and let's get going with this. But uh, one thing I wanted to try before we go any further. Alexa, diminish lights 50%. Alexa, increase volume by 50%. Alexa, how tall is Jeff Goldblum? Alexa, delete all past episodes of Babylon 5. Okay, on with the show.
1: Alexa, Self destruct in three seconds. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Master of the World by Jules Verne. Chapter 5 Along the Shores of New England. At the time when the newspapers were filled with these reports, I was again in Washington. On my return I had presented myself at my chief's office, but had been unable to see him. Family affairs had suddenly called him away, to be absent some weeks. Mr. Ward, however, undoubtedly knew of the failure of my mission. The newspapers, especially those of North Carolina, had given full details of our ascent of the Great Erie. Naturally I was much annoyed by this delay, which further fretted my restless curiosity. I could turn to no other plans for the future. Could I give up the hope of learning the secret of the Great Erie? No. I would return to the attack a dozen times, if necessary, and despite every failure. Surely the winning of access within those walls was not a task beyond human power. A scaffolding might be raised to the summit of the cliff, or a tunnel might be pierced through its depth. Our engineers met problems more difficult every day. But in this case it was necessary to consider the expense, which might easily grow out of proportion to the advantages to be gained. A tunnel would cost many thousand dollars, and what good would it accomplish beyond satisfying the public curiosity, and my own? My personal resources were wholly insufficient for the achievement. Mr. Ward, who held the government's funds, was away. I even thought of trying to interest some millionaire oh if i could but have promised one of them some gold or silver mines within the mountain but such an hypothesis was not admissible the chain of the Appalachians is not situated in a gold-bearing region like that of the Pacific Mountains the Transvaal or Australia it was not until the fifteenth of june that mr ward returned to duty despite my lack of success he received me warmly here is our poor Struck cried he at my entrance our poor Struck who has failed! No more, Mr. Ward, than if you had charged me to investigate the surface of the moon, answered I. We found ourselves face to face with purely natural obstacles, insurmountable with the forces then at our command. I do not doubt that, Struck. I do not doubt that in the least. Nevertheless, the fact remains that you have discovered nothing of what is going on within the Great Eyrie. Nothing, Mr. Ward. You saw no sign of fire none and you heard no suspicious noises whatever none then it is still uncertain if there is really a volcano there still uncertain mr ward but if it is there we have good reason to believe that it is sunk into a profound sleep still returned mr ward there is nothing to show that it will not wake up again any day struck It is not enough that a volcano should sleep. It must be absolutely extinguished, unless, indeed, all these threatening rumours have been born solely in the Carolinian imagination. That is not possible, sir, I said. Both Mr. Smith, the mayor of Morganton, and his friend, the mayor of Pleasant Garden, are reliable men, and they speak from their own knowledge in this matter. Flames have certainly risen above the Great Erie. Strange noises have issued from it. There can be no doubt whatever of the reality of these phenomena.' "'Granted,' declared Mr. Ward, "'I admit that the evidence is unassailable. So the deduction to be drawn is that the Great Erie has not yet given up its secret.' "'If we are determined to know it, Mr. Ward, the solution is only a solution of expense. Pickaxes and dynamite would soon conquer those walls.' No doubt, responded the chief. But such an undertaking hardly seems justified, since the mountain is now quiet. We will wait a while. Perhaps nature herself will disclose her mystery. Mr. Ward, believe me that I regret deeply that I have been unable to solve the problem you entrusted to me, I said. Nonsense! Do not upset yourself, Struck. Take your defeat philosophically. We cannot always be successful.' even in the police. How many criminals escape us? I believe we should never capture one of them, if they were a little more intelligent and less imprudent, and if they did not compromise themselves so stupidly. Nothing, it seems to me, would be easier than to plan a crime, a theft, or an assassination, and to execute it without arousing any suspicions, or leaving any traces to be followed. You understand, Strzok. I do not want to give our criminals lessons. I much prefer to have them remain as they are. Nevertheless, there are many whom the police will never be able to track down. On this matter I shared absolutely the opinion of my chief. It is among rascals that one finds the most fools. For this very reason I had been much surprised that none of the authorities had been able to throw any light upon the recent performances of the demon automobile. And when Mr. Ward brought up this subject, I did not conceal from him my astonishment. He pointed out that the vehicle was practically unpursuable, that in its earlier appearances it had apparently vanished from all roads even before a telephone message could be sent ahead. Active and numerous police agents had been spread throughout the country, but no one of them had encountered the delinquent. He did not move continuously, from place to place even at his amazing speed, but seemed to appear only for a moment and then to vanish into thin air. True, he had at length remained visible along the entire route from Prairie du Chien to Milwaukee, and he had covered in less than an hour and a half this track of two hundred miles. But since then there had been no news whatever of the machine. Arrived at the end of the route, driven onward by its own impetus, unable to stop, Had it indeed been engulfed within the waters of Lake Michigan? Must we conclude that the machine and its driver had both perished? That there was no longer any danger to be feared from either? The great majority of the public refused to accept this conclusion. They fully expected the machine to reappear. Mr. Ward frankly admitted that the whole matter seemed to him most extraordinary, and I shared his view. Assuredly, if this infernal chauffeur did not return, his apparition would have to be placed among those superhuman mysteries which it is not given to man to understand. We had fully discussed this affair, the chief and I, and I thought that our interview was at an end when, after pacing the room for a few moments, he said abruptly, Yes, what happened there at Milwaukee was very strange, but here is something no less so. With this he handed me a report which he had received from Boston, on a subject of which the evening papers had just begun to apprise their readers. While I read it, Mr. Ward was summoned from the room. I seated myself by the window, and studied with extreme attention the matter of the report. For some days the waters along the coast of Maine, Connecticut, and Massachusetts had been the scene of an appearance which no one could exactly describe. A moving body would appear amid the waters, some two or three miles offshore, and go through rapid evolutions. It would flash for a while, back and forth among the waves, and then dart out of sight. The body moved with such lightning speed that the best telescopes could hardly follow it. Its length did not seem to exceed thirty feet. Its cigar-shaped form and greenish color made it difficult to distinguish against the background of the ocean. It had been most frequently observed along the coast between Cape Cod and Nova Scotia. From Providence, from Boston, from Portsmouth, and from Portland, motor boats and steam launches had repeatedly attempted to approach this moving body and even to give it chase. They could not get anywhere near it. Pursuit seemed useless. It darted like an arrow beyond the range of view. Naturally, Widely differing opinions were held as to the nature of this object. But no hypothesis rested on any secure basis. Seamen were as much at a loss as others. At first sailors thought it must be some great fish, like a whale. But it is well known that all these animals come to the surface with a certain regularity, to breathe, and spout up columns of mingled air and water. Now this strange animal, if it was an animal, had never blown, as the whalers say, nor had it ever made any noises of breathing. Yet if it were not one of these huge marine mammals, how was this unknown monster to be classed? Did it belong among the legendary dwellers in the deep, the krakens, the octopuses, the leviathans, the famous sea-serpents? At any rate, since this monster, whatever it was, had appeared along the New England shores. The little fishing-smacks and pleasure-boats dared not venture forth. Wherever it appeared the boats fled to the nearest harbour, as was but prudent. If the animal was of a ferocious character, none cared to await its attack. As to the large ships and coast steamers, they had nothing to fear from any monster, whale or otherwise. Several of them had seen this creature at a distance of some miles, But when they attempted to approach, it fled rapidly away. One day, even a fast United States gunboat went out from Boston, if not to pursue the monster, at least to send after it a few cannon shot. Almost instantly the animal disappeared, and the attempt was vain. As yet, however, the monster had shown no intention of attacking either boats or people. At this moment Mr. Ward returned, and I interrupted my reading to say, there seems as yet no reason to complain of this sea-serpent. It flees before big ships. It does not pursue little ones. Feeling and intelligence are not very strong in fishes. Yet their emotions exist, struck and if strongly aroused. But, Mr. Ward, the beast seems not at all dangerous. One or two things will happen. Either it will presently quit these coasts, or finally it will be captured and we shall be able to study it at our leisure, here in the museum at Washington." "'And if it is not a marine animal?' asked Mr. Ward. "'What else can it be?' I protested in surprise. "'Finish your reading,' said Mr. Ward. I did so, and found that in the second part of the report my chief had underlined some passages in red pencil. For some time no one had doubted that this was an animal, and that, if it were vigorously pursued, it would at last be driven from our shores. But a change of opinion had come about. People began to ask if, instead of a fish, this were not some new and remarkable kind of boat. Certainly in that case its engine must be one of amazing power. Perhaps the inventor, before selling the secret of his invention, sought to attract public attention and to astound the maritime world. Such surety in the movements of his boat, grace in its every evolution, such ease in defying pursuit by its arrow-like speed, surely these were enough to arouse world-wide curiosity. At that time great progress had been made in the manufacture of marine engines. Huge transatlantic steamers completed the ocean passage in five days, and the engineers had not yet spoken their last word. Neither were the navies of the world behind. The cruisers, the torpedo-boats, the torpedo-destroyers, could match the swiftest steamers of the Atlantic and Pacific, or of the Indian trade. If, however, this were a boat of some new design, there had as yet been no opportunity to observe its form. As to the engines which drove it, they must be of a power far beyond the fastest known by what force they worked, was equally a problem. Since the boat had no sails, it was not driven by the wind, and since it had no smokestack, it was not driven by steam. At this point in the report I again paused in my reading and considered the comment I wished to make. "'What are you puzzling over, Struck? demanded my chief. "'It is this, Mr. Ward.' The motive power of this so-called boat must be as tremendous and as unknown as that of the remarkable automobile which has so amazed us all. So that is your idea, is it struck? Yes, Mr. Ward. There was but one conclusion to be drawn. If the mysterious chauffeur had disappeared, if he had perished with his machine in Lake Michigan, it was equally important now to win the secret of this no less mysterious navigator and it must be won before he in his turn plunged into the abyss of the ocean. Was it not the interest of the inventor to disclose his invention? Would not the American government, or any other, give him any price he chose to ask? Yet, unfortunately, since the inventor of the terrestrial apparition had persisted in preserving his incognito, was it not to be feared that the inventor of the marine apparition would equally preserve his? even if the first machine still existed, it was no longer heard from, and would not the second, in the same way, after having disclosed its powers, disappear in its turn without a single trace. What gave weight to this probability was that since the arrival of this report at Washington twenty-four hours before, the presence of the extraordinary boat hadn't been announced from anywhere along the shore. Neither had it been seen on any other coast though, of course, the assertion that it would not reappear at all would have been hazardous, to say the least. I noted another interesting and possibly important point. It was a singular coincidence which indeed Mr. Ward suggested to me, at the same moment that I was considering it. This was that only after the disappearance of the wonderful automobile had the no less wonderful boat come into view. Moreover, their engines both possessed a most dangerous power of locomotion. If both should go rushing at the same time over the face of the world, the same danger would threaten mankind everywhere, in boats, in vehicles, and on foot. Therefore it was absolutely necessary that the police should in some manner interfere to protect the public ways of travel. That is what Mr. Ward pointed out to me, and our duty was obvious. But how could we accomplish this task? We discussed the matter for some time, and I was just about to leave when Mr. Ward made one last suggestion. "'Have you not observed, Struck? said he, "'that there is a sort of fantastic resemblance between the general appearance of this boat and this automobile?' "'There is something of the sort, Mr. Ward.' "'Well, is it not possible that the two are one?' End of chapter Is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Master of the World, by Jules Verne, Chapter Six: The First Letter. After leaving Mr. Ward, I returned to my home in Long Street. There, I had plenty of time to consider this strange case, uninterrupted by either wife or children. My household consisted solely of an ancient servant, who, having been formerly in the service of my mother, had now continued for fifteen years in mine. two months before i had obtained a leave of absence it had still two weeks to run unless indeed some unforeseen circumstance interrupted it some mission which could not be delayed this leave as i have shown had already been interrupted for four days by my exploration of the great Erie. AND NOW WAS IT NOT MY DUTY TO ABANDON MY VACATION AND ENDEAVOR TO THROW LIGHT UPON THE REMARKABLE EVENTS OF WHICH THE ROAD TO MILWAUKEE AND THE SHORE OF NEW ENGLAND HAD BEEN IN TURN THE SCENE? I WOULD HAVE GIVEN MUCH TO SOLVE THE TWIN MYSTERIES, BUT HOW WAS IT POSSIBLE TO FOLLOW THE TRACK OF THIS AUTOMOBILE, OR THIS BOAT? SEATED IN MY EASY-CHAIR AFTER BREAKFAST, WITH MY Pipe LIGHTED, I OPENED MY NEWSPAPER. TO WHAT SHOULD I TURN? Politics interested me but little, with its eternal strife between the Republicans and the Democrats. Neither did I care for the news of society, nor for the sporting page. You will not be surprised, then, that my first idea was to see if there was any news from North Carolina about the Great Erie. There was little hope of this, however, for Mr. Smith had promised to telegraph me at once if anything occurred." I felt quite sure that the Mayor of Morganton was as eager for information, and as watchful as could have been myself. The paper told me nothing new. It dropped idly from my hand, and I remained deep in thought. What most frequently recurred to me was the suggestion of Mr. Ward that perhaps the automobile and the boat which had attracted our attention were in reality one and the same. Very probably at least. The two machines had been built by the same hand and beyond doubt these were similar engines which generated this remarkable speed more than doubling the previous records of earth and sea the same inventor repeated i evidently this hypothesis had strong grounds the fact that the two machines had not yet appeared at the same time added weight to the idea i murmured to myself after the mystery of Great Erie comes that of Milwaukee and Boston. Will this new problem be as difficult to solve as was the other?" I noted idly that this new affair had a general resemblance to the other, since both menaced the security of the general public. To be sure, only the inhabitants of the Blue Ridge region had been in danger from an eruption or possible earthquake at Great Erie. While now, on every road of the United States, Or along every league of its coasts and harbours every inhabitant was in danger from this vehicle or this boat with its sudden appearance and insane speed i found that as was to be expected the newspapers not only suggested but enlarged upon the dangers of the case timid people everywhere were much alarmed my old servant naturally credulous and superstitious was particularly upset That same day after dinner, as she was clearing away the things, she stopped before me, a water-bottle in one hand, the serviette in the other, and asked anxiously, "'Is there no news, sir?' "'None,' I answered, knowing well to what she referred. "'The automobile has not come back?' "'No.' "'Nor the boat?' "'Nor the boat. There is no news even in the best-informed papers.' but your secret police information we are no wiser then sir if you please of what use are the police it is a question which has fazed me more than once now you see what will happen continued the old housekeeper complainingly some fine morning he will come without warning this terrible chauffeur and rush down our street here and kill us all good when that happens, there will be some chance of catching him. He will never be arrested, Sir. Why not? Because he is the devil himself, and you can't arrest the devil. Decidedly, thought I the devil has many uses, and if he did not exist, we would have to invent him to give people some way of explaining the inexplicable. It was he who lit the flames of the great Erie. It was he who smashed the record in the Wisconsin race it is he who is scurrying along the shores of connecticut and massachusetts but putting to one side this evil spirit who is so necessary for the convenience of the ignorant there was no doubt that we were facing a most bewildering problem had both of these machines disappeared forever they had passed like a meteor like a star shooting through space and in a hundred years the adventure would become a legend much to the taste of the gossips of the next century for several days the newspapers of america and even those of europe continued to discuss these events editorials crowded upon editorials rumors were added to rumors storytellers of every kind crowded to the front the public of two continents was interested in some parts of europe there was even jealousy that america should have been chosen as the field of such And experience if these marvelous inventors were american then their country their army and navy would have a great advantage over others the united states might acquire an incontestable superiority under the date of the 10th of june a new york paper published a carefully studied article on this phase of the subject comparing the speed of the swiftest known vessels with the smallest minimum of speed which could possibly be assigned to the new boat THE ARTICLE DEMONSTRATED THAT IF THE UNITED STATES SECURED THIS SECRET, EUROPE WOULD BE BUT THREE DAYS AWAY FROM HER, WHILE SHE WOULD STILL BE FIVE DAYS FROM EUROPE. IF OUR OWN POLICE HAD SEARCHED DILIGENTLY TO DISCOVER THE MYSTERY OF THE GREAT Erie, THE SECRET SERVICE OF EVERY COUNTRY IN THE WORLD WAS NOW INTERESTED IN THESE NEW PROBLEMS. MR. WARD REFERRED TO THE MATTER EACH TIME I SAW HIM our chat would begin by his rallying me about my ill-success in Carolina, and I would respond by reminding him that success there was only a question of expense. "'Never mind, my good Strock," said he. "'There will come a chance for our clever inspector to regain his laurels. Take now this affair of the automobile and the boat. If you could clear that up in advance of all the detectives of the world, what an honour it would be to our department!' what glory for you it certainly would mr ward and if you put the matter in my charge who knows struck let us wait a while let us wait matters stood thus when on the morning of june fifteenth my old servant brought me a letter from the letter carrier a registered letter for which i had to sign i looked at the address i did not know the handwriting the postmark dating from two days before, was stamped at the post-office of Morganton. Morganton! Here at last was, no doubt, news from Mr. Elias Smith. "'Yes!' exclaimed I, speaking to my old servant, for lack of another. "'It must be from Mr. Smith, at last. I know no one else in Morganton, and if he writes, he has news.' "'Morganton!' said the old woman. ISN'T THAT THE PLACE WHERE THE DEMONS SET FIRE TO THEIR MOUNTAIN?" EXACTLY. Oh, SIR, I HOPE YOU DON'T MEAN TO GO BACK THERE. BECAUSE YOU WILL END BY BEING BURNED UP IN THAT FURNACE OF THE GREAT ERIE, AND I WOULDN'T WANT YOU BURIED THAT WAY, SIR. CHEER UP, AND LET US SEE IF IT IS NOT BETTER NEWS THAN THAT. THE ENVELOPE WAS SEALED WITH RED sealing wax AND STAMPED WITH A SORT OF COAT OF ARMS, SURMOUNTED WITH THREE STARS. The paper was thick and very strong. I broke the envelope, and drew out the letter. It was a single sheet, folded in four, and written on one side only. My first glance was for the signature. There was no signature. Nothing but three initials at the end of the last line. "'The letter is not from the Mayor of Morganton,' said I. "'Then from whom?' asked the old servant doubly curious in her quality as a woman and as an old gossip. Looking again at the three initials of the signature, I said, I know no one for whom these letters would stand, neither at Morganton nor elsewhere. The handwriting was bold, both upstrokes and downstrokes very sharp, about twenty lines in all. Here is the letter, of which I, with good reason, retained an exact copy." It was dated, to my extreme stupefaction, from that mysterious Great Erie. Great Erie, Blue Ridge Mountains, 2. Mr. Struck, North Carolina, June 13th. Chief Inspector of Police, 34 Long Street, Washington, D.C. Sir, you were charged with the mission of penetrating the Great Erie. You came on April the 28th accompanied by the mayor of Morganton and two guides. You mounted to the foot of the wall, and you encircled it, finding it too high and steep to climb. You sought a breach, and you found none. Know this, none enter the great Eyrie, or if one enters, he never returns. Do not try again, for the second attempt will not result as did the first, but will have grave consequences for you. Heed this warning, or evil fortune will come to you. M O W End of Chapter. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Master of the World by Jules Verne, Chapter seven A Third Machine. I confess that at first this letter dumbfounded me. O's and ahs slipped from my open mouth. The old servant stared at me, not knowing what to think. Oh, sir, is it bad news? I answered for I kept few secrets from this faithful soul by reading her the letter from end to end. She listened with much anxiety. A joke without doubt, said I, shrugging my shoulders. "'Well,' returned my superstitious handmaid, "'if it isn't from the devil, it's from the devil's country, anyway.' Left alone, I again went over this unexpected letter. Reflection inclined me yet more strongly to believe that it was the work of a practical joker. My adventure was well known. The newspapers had given it in full detail. Some satirist, such as exist even in America, must have written this threatening letter to mock me.' To assume, on the other hand, that the Erie really served as the refuge of a band of criminals seemed absurd. If they feared that the police would discover their retreat, surely they would not have been so foolish as thus to force attention upon themselves. Their chief security would lie in keeping their presence there unknown. They must have realized that such a challenge from them would only arouse the police to renewed activity." dynamite or melanite would soon open an entrance to their fortress. Moreover, how could these men have, themselves, gained entrance into the Erie unless there existed a passage which we had failed to discover? Assuredly the letter came from a jester, or a madman, and I need not worry over it, nor even consider it. Hence, though for an instant I had thought of showing this letter to Mr. Ward, I decided not to do so. Surely he would attach no importance to it. However I did not destroy it, but locked it in my desk for safe-keeping. If more letters came of the same kind, and with the same initials, I would attach as little weight to them as to this. Several days passed quietly. There was nothing to lead me to expect that I should soon quit Washington though in my line of duty one is never certain of the morrow, At any moment I might be sent speeding from Oregon to Florida, from Maine to Texas, and this unpleasant thought haunted me frequently. If my next mission were no more successful than that to the Great Erie, I might as well give up and hand in my resignation from the Force. Of the mysterious chauffeur or chauffeurs, nothing more was heard. I KNEW THAT OUR OWN GOVERNMENT AGENTS, AS WELL AS FOREIGN ONES, WERE KEEPING KEEN WATCH OVER ALL THE ROADS AND RIVERS, ALL THE LAKES AND THE COASTS OF AMERICA. OF COURSE THE SIZE OF THE COUNTRY MADE ANY CLOSE SUPERVISION IMPOSSIBLE, BUT THESE TWIN INVENTORS HAD NOT BEFORE CHOSEN SECLUDED AND UNFREQUENTED SPOTS IN WHICH TO APPEAR. THE MAIN HIGHWAY OF WISCONSIN ON A GREAT RACE DAY, THE HARBOR OF BOSTON, incessantly crossed by thousands of boats these were hardly what would be called hiding places if the daring driver had not perished of which there was always strong probability then he must have left america perhaps he was in the waters of the old world or else resting in some retreat known only to himself and in that case ah i repeated to myself many times for such a retreat As secret, as inaccessible, this fantastic personage could not find one better than the Great Erie. But of course a boat could not get there any more than an automobile. Only high-flying birds of prey, eagles or condors, could find refuge there. The 19th of June I was going to the police bureau when, on leaving my house I noticed two men who looked at me with a certain keenness. Not knowing them I took no notice, and if my attention was drawn to the matter it was because my servant spoke of it when I returned. For some days, she said, she had noticed that two men seemed to be spying upon me in the street. They stood constantly, perhaps a hundred steps from my house, and she suspected that they followed me each time I went up the street. "'You are sure?' I asked yes sir and no longer ago than yesterday when you came into the house these men came slipping along in your footsteps and then went away as soon as the door was shut behind you you must be mistaken I am NOT sir and if you met these two men you would know them I would good I cried laughing I SEE YOU HAVE THE VERY SPIRIT FOR A DETECTIVE. I MUST ENGAGE YOU AS A MEMBER OF OUR FORCE. Joke if you like, sir, but I have still two good eyes, and I don't need spectacles to recognize people. Someone is spying on you, that's certain, and you should put some of your men to track them in turn. All right, I promise to do so,' I said to satisfy her. AND WHEN MY MEN GET AFTER THEM, WE SHALL SOON KNOW WHAT THESE MYSTERIOUS FELLOWS WANT OF ME. IN TRUTH, I DID NOT TAKE THE GOOD SOUL'S EXCITED ANNOUNCEMENT VERY SERIOUSLY. I ADDED, HOWEVER, WHEN I GO OUT, I WILL WATCH THE PEOPLE AROUND ME WITH GREAT CARE. THAT WILL BE BEST, SIR. MY POOR OLD HOUSEKEEPER WAS ALWAYS FRIGHTENING HERSELF AT NOTHING. IF I SEE THEM AGAIN, SHE ADDED, I WILL WARN YOU BEFORE YOU SET FOOT OUT OF DOORS. AGREED. AND I BROKE OFF THE CONVERSATION, KNOWING WELL THAT IF I ALLOWED HER TO RUN ON, SHE WOULD END BY BEING SURE THAT Beelzebub HIMSELF AND ONE OF HIS CHIEF ATTENDANTS WERE AT MY HEELS. THE TWO FOLLOWING DAYS THERE WAS CERTAINLY NO ONE SPYING ON ME, EITHER AT MY EXITS OR ENTRANCES, SO I CONCLUDED MY OLD SERVANT HAD MADE MUCH OF NOTHING, AS USUAL. But on the morning of the 22nd of June, after rushing upstairs as rapidly as her age would permit, the devoted old soul burst into my room, and in a half-whisper gasped, Sir! Sir! What is it? They are there! Who? I queried, my mind on anything but the web she had been spinning about me. The two spies! Ah! Those wonderful spies! Themselves! IN THE STREET, RIGHT IN FRONT OF OUR WINDOWS, WATCHING THE HOUSE WAITING FOR YOU TO GO OUT." I went to the window, and raising just an edge of the shade, so as not to give any warning, I saw two men on the pavement. They were rather fine-looking men, broad-shouldered and vigorous, aged somewhat under forty, dressed in the ordinary fashion of the day, with slouched hats, heavy woolen suits stout walking-shoes and sticks in hand undoubtedly they were staring persistently at my apparently unwatchful house then having exchanged a few words they strolled off a little way and returned again are you sure these are the same men you saw before yes sir evidently i could no longer dismiss her warning as an hallucination and i promised myself to clear up the matter As to following the men myself i was presumably too well known to them to address them directly would probably be of no use but that very day one of our best men should be put on watch and if the spies returned on the morrow they should be tracked in their turn and watched until their identity was established at the moment they were waiting to follow me to police headquarters for it was there that i was bound as usual if they accompanied me, I might be able to offer them a hospitality for which they would scarce thank me. I took my hat, and while the housekeeper remained peeping from the window, I went downstairs, opened the door, and stepped into the street. The two men were no longer there. Despite all my watchfulness, that day I saw no more of them as I passed along the streets. From that time on, indeed, Neither my old servant nor I saw them again before the house, nor did I encounter them elsewhere. Their appearance, however, was stamped upon my memory. I would not forget them. Perhaps, after all, admitting that I had been the object of their espionage, they had been mistaken in my identity. Having obtained a good look at me, they now followed me no more. So, in the end, I came to regard this matter as— of no more importance than the letter with the initials M.O.W. Then, on the 24th of June, there came a new event, to further stimulate both my interest and that of the general public, in the previous mysteries of the automobile and the boat. The Washington Evening Star published the following account, which was next morning copied by every paper in the country. Lake Kurdal in Kansas, forty miles west of Topeka, is little known. It deserves wider knowledge, and doubtless will have it hereafter, for attention is now drawn to it in a very remarkable way. This lake, deep among the mountains, appears to have no outlet. What it loses by evaporation, it regains from the little neighboring streamlets and the heavy rains. Lake Kurdal covers about seventy-five square miles. AND ITS LEVEL IS BUT SLIGHTLY BELOW THAT OF THE HEIGHTS WHICH SURROUND IT. SHUT IN AMONG THE MOUNTAINS, IT CAN BE REACHED ONLY BY NARROW AND ROCKY GORGES. SEVERAL VILLAGES, HOWEVER, HAVE SPRUNG UP UPON ITS BANKS. IT IS FULL OF FISH, AND FISHING BOATS COVER ITS WATERS. LAKE KERDAL IS IN MANY PLACES FIFTY FEET DEEP CLOSE TO SHORE. SHARP POINTED ROCKS FORM THE EDGES OF THIS HUGE BASIN. Its surges, roused by high winds, beat upon its banks with fury, and the houses near at hand are often deluged with spray as if with the downpour of a hurricane. The lake, already deep at the edge, becomes yet deeper toward the centre, where in some places soundings show over three hundred feet of water, THE FISHING INDUSTRY SUPPORTS A POPULATION OF SEVERAL THOUSANDS, AND THERE ARE SEVERAL HUNDRED FISHING BOATS IN ADDITION TO THE DOZEN OR SO OF LITTLE STEAMERS WHICH SERVE THE TRAFFIC OF THE LAKE. BEYOND THE CIRCLE OF THE MOUNTAINS LIE THE RAILROADS WHICH TRANSPORT THE PRODUCTS OF THE FISHING INDUSTRY THROUGHOUT KANSAS AND THE NEIGHBORING STATES. THIS ACCOUNT OF LAKE KERDAL IS NECESSARY FOR THE UNDERSTANDING OF THE REMARKABLE FACTS WHICH WE ARE ABOUT TO REPORT. AND THIS IS WHAT THE EVENING STAR THEN REPORTED IN ITS STARTLING ARTICLE. FOR SOME TIME PAST, THE FISHERMEN HAVE NOTICED A STRANGE UPHEAVAL IN THE WATERS OF THE LAKE. SOMETIMES IT RISES, AS IF A WAVE SURGED UP FROM ITS depths. EVEN IN PERFECTLY CALM WEATHER, WHEN THERE IS NO WIND WHATEVER, THIS UPHEAVAL SOMETIMES ARISES IN A MASS OF FOAM. Tossed about by violent waves and unaccountable currents, boats have been swept beyond all control. Sometimes they have been dashed one against another, and serious damage has resulted. This confusion of the waters evidently has its origin somewhere in the depths of the lake, and various explanations have been offered to account for it. At first it was suggested that the trouble was due to seismic forces— some volcanic action beneath the lake. But this hypothesis had to be rejected when it was recognized that the disturbance was not confined to one locality, but spread itself over the entire surface of the lake, either at one part or another, in the center or along the edges, traveling along almost in a regular line and in a way to exclude entirely all idea of earthquake or volcanic action. Another hypothesis suggested that it was a marine monster who thus upheaved the waters. But unless the beast had been born in the lake, and there grown to its gigantic proportions unsuspected, which was scarce possible, he must have come there from outside. Lake Kurdal, however, has no connection with any other waters. If this lake were situated near any of the oceans, there might be subterranean canals, but in the center of america and at the height of some thousands of feet above sea level this is not possible in short here is another riddle not easy to solve and it is much easier to point out the impossibility of false explanations than to discover the true one is it possible that a submarine boat is being experimented with beneath the lake such boats are no longer impossible today Some years ago, at Bridgeport, Connecticut, there was launched a boat, the Protector, which could go on the water, under the water, and also upon land. Built by an inventor named Lake, supplied with two motors, an electric one of seventy-five horsepower, and a gasoline one of two hundred and fifty horsepower, it was also provided with wheels a yard in diameter which enabled it to roll over the roads as well as swim the seas. But even then, granting that the turmoil of Lake Kurdal might be produced by a submarine, brought to a high degree of perfection, there remains as before the question of how it could have reached Lake Kurdal. The lake, shut in on all sides by a circle of mountains, is no more accessible to a submarine than to a sea monster." In whatever way this last puzzling question may be solved, the nature of this strange appearance can no longer be disputed since the twentieth of June. On that day, in the afternoon, the schooner Markell, while speeding with all sails set, came into violent collision with something just below the water-level. There was no shoal nor rock near, for the lake in this part is eighty or ninety feet deep the schooner, with both her bow and her side badly broken, ran great danger of sinking. She managed, however, to reach the shore before her decks were completely submerged. When the Markel had been pumped out and hauled up on shore, an examination showed that she had received a blow near the bow as if from a powerful ram. From this it seems evident that there is actually a submarine boat which darts about beneath the surface of Lake Kirdall with most remarkable rapidity. The thing is difficult to explain. Not only is there a question as to how did the submarine get there, but why is it there? Why does it never come to the surface? What reason has its owner for remaining unknown? Are other disasters to be expected from its reckless course? The article in the Evening Star closed with this truly striking suggestion after the mysterious automobile came the mysterious boat now comes the mysterious submarine must we conclude that the three engines are due to the genius of the same inventor and that the three vehicles are in truth but one End of chapter this recording is by mark smith of simpsonville south carolina the master of the world by jules verne chapter eight at any cost the suggestion of the star came like a revelation it was accepted everywhere not only were these three vehicles the work of the same inventor they were the same machine IT WAS NOT EASY TO SEE HOW THE REMARKABLE TRANSFORMATION COULD BE PRACTICALLY ACCOMPLISHED FROM ONE MEANS OF LOCOMOTION TO THE OTHER. HOW COULD AN AUTOMOBILE BECOME A BOAT, AND YET MORE, A SUBMARINE? ALL THE MACHINE SEEMED TO LACK WAS THE POWER OF FLYING THROUGH THE AIR. NEVERTHELESS, EVERYTHING THAT WAS KNOWN OF THE THREE DIFFERENT MACHINES, AS TO THEIR SIZE, THEIR SHAPE, THEIR LACK OF ODOR OR OF STEAM, AND, ABOVE ALL, THEIR REMARKABLE SPEED, seemed to imply their identity the public grown blasé with so many excitements found in this new marvel a stimulus to reawaken their curiosity the newspapers dwelt now chiefly on the importance of the invention this new engine whether in one vehicle or three had given proofs of its power what amazing proofs the invention must be bought at any price the United States government must purchase it at once for the use of the nation. Assuredly, the great European powers would stop at nothing to be beforehand with America, and gain possession of an engine so invaluable for military and naval use. What incalculable advantages would it give to any nation, both on land and sea? Its destructive powers could not even be estimated until its qualities and limitations were better known no amount of money would be too great to pay for the secret. America could not put her millions to better use. But to buy the machine it was necessary to find the inventor. And there seemed the chief difficulty. In vain was Lake Curdall's search from end to end. Even its depths were explored with a sounding line without result. Must it be concluded that the submarine no longer lurked beneath its waters? but in that case how had the boat gotten away for that matter how had it come an insoluble problem the submarine was heard from no more neither in lake Kurdal nor elsewhere it had disappeared like the automobile from the roads and like the boat from the shores of america several times in my interviews with mr ward we discussed this matter which still filled his mind our men continued everywhere on the lookout, but as unsuccessfully as other agents. On the morning of the twenty-seventh of June I was summoned into the presence of Mr. Ward. "'Well, Struck, said he, "'here is a splendid chance for you to get your revenge.' "'Revenge for the great eerie disappointment?' "'Of course!' "'What chance?' asked I, not knowing if he spoke seriously or in jest." "'Why, here?' he answered. "'Would you not like to discover the inventor of this threefold machine?' "'I certainly should, Mr. Ward. Give me the order to take charge of the matter, and I will accomplish the impossible, in order to succeed. It is true, I believe it will be difficult.' "'Undoubtedly struck! Perhaps even more difficult than to penetrate into the great Eyrie.' It was evident that Mr. Ward was intent on rallying me about my unsuccess. He would not do that, I felt assured, out of mere unkindness. Perhaps then he meant to rouse my resolution. He knew me well, and realized that I would have given anything in the world to recoup my defeat. I waited quietly for new instructions. Mr. Ward dropped his jesting, and said to me very generously, — I know, Struck, that you accomplished everything that depended on human powers, and that no blame attaches to you. But we face now a matter very different from that of the Great Erie. The day the Government decides to force that secret, everything is ready. We have only to spend some thousands of dollars, and the road will be open.' "'That is what I would urge.' "'But at present,' said Mr. Ward, shaking his head, IT IS MUCH MORE IMPORTANT TO PLACE OUR HANDS ON THIS FANTASTIC INVENTOR, WHO SO CONSTANTLY ESCAPES US. THAT IS WORK FOR A DETECTIVE INDEED, A MASTER DETECTIVE. HE HAS NOT BEEN HEARD FROM AGAIN? NO, AND THOUGH THERE IS EVERY REASON TO BELIEVE THAT HE HAS BEEN, AND STILL CONTINUES, BENEATH THE WATERS OF LAKE KERDAL, IT HAS BEEN IMPOSSIBLE TO FIND ANY TRACE OF HIM ANYWHERE AROUND THERE one would almost fancy he had the power of making himself invisible, this proteus of a mechanic. "'It seems likely,' said I, "'that he will never be seen until he wishes to be.' "'True, Struck, and to my mind there is only one way of dealing with him, and that is to offer him such an enormous price that he cannot refuse to sell his invention.' Mr. Ward was right." Indeed, the government had already made the effort to secure speech with this Hero of the Day, than whom surely no human being has ever better merited the title. The press had widely spread the news, and this extraordinary individual must assuredly know what the government desired of him, and how completely he could name the terms he wished. "'Surely,' added Mr. Ward, "'this invention can be of no personal use to the man?' that he should hide it from the rest of us. There is every reason why he should sell it. Can this unknown be already some dangerous criminal who, thanks to his machine, hopes to defy all pursuit? My chief then went on to explain that it had been decided to employ other means in search of the inventor. It was possible, after all, that he had perished with his machine in some dangerous manoeuvre, if so the ruined vehicle might prove itself almost as valuable and instructive to the mechanical world as the man himself but since the accident to the schooner markle on lake kirdal no news of him whatever had reached the police on this point mr ward did not attempt to hide his disappointment and his anxiety anxiety yes for it was manifestly becoming more and more difficult for him to fulfill his duty of protecting the public how could we arrest criminals if they could flee from justice at such speed over both land and sea how could we pursue them under the oceans and when dirigible balloons should also have reached their full perfection we would even have to chase men through the air I ASKED MYSELF IF MY COLLEAGUES AND I WOULD NOT FIND OURSELVES SOME DAY REDUCED TO UTTER HELPLESSNESS. IF POLICE OFFICIALS BECOME A USELESS ENCUMBRANCE, WOULD THEY BE DEFINITELY DISCARDED BY SOCIETY? HERE THERE RECURRED TO ME THE JESTING LETTER I HAD RECEIVED A FORTNIGHT BEFORE, THE LETTER WHICH THREATENED MY LIBERTY AND EVEN MY LIFE. I RECALLED ALSO THE SINGULAR ESPIONAGE OF WHICH I HAD BEEN THE SUBJECT. I asked myself if I had better mention these things to Mr. Ward. But they seemed to have absolutely no relation to the matter now in hand. The great Erie affair had been definitely put aside by the government, since an eruption was no longer threatening. And they now wished to employ me upon this newer matter. I waited then to mention this letter to my chief at some future time, when it would not be so sore a joke to me. Mr. Ward again took up our conversation. "'We are resolved by some means to establish communication with this inventor. He has disappeared, it is true, but he may reappear at any moment, and in any part of the country. I have chosen you, Struck, to follow him the instant he appears. You must hold yourself ready to leave Washington on the moment. Do not quit your house, except to come here to headquarters each day.' NOTIFY ME EACH TIME BY TELEPHONE WHEN YOU START FROM HOME, AND REPORT TO ME PERSONALLY THE MOMENT YOU ARRIVE HERE. I WILL FOLLOW ORDERS EXACTLY, MR. WARD, I ANSWERED, BUT PERMIT ME ONE QUESTION. OUGHT I TO ACT ALONE, OR WILL IT NOT BE BETTER TO JOIN WITH ME? THAT IS WHAT I INTEND, SAID THE CHIEF, INTERRUPTING ME. YOU ARE TO CHOOSE TWO OF OUR MEN WHOM YOU THINK THE BEST FITTED. I will do so, Mr. Ward. And now, if some day or other I stand in the presence of our man, what am I to do with him? Above all things, do not lose sight of him. If there is no other way, arrest him. You shall have a warrant. A useful precaution, Mr. Ward. If he started to jump into his automobile and to speed away at the rate we know of, I must stop him at any cost.' One cannot argue long with a man making two hundred miles an hour. You must prevent that, stroke, and the arrest made, telegraph me. After that the matter will be in my hands. Count on me, Mr. Ward, at any hour, day, or night, I shall be ready to start with my men. I thank you for having entrusted this mission to me. If it succeeds, it will be a great honour. And of great profit, added my chief dismissing me returning home i made all preparations for a trip of indefinite duration perhaps my good housekeeper imagined that i planned a return to the great erie which she regarded as an antechamber of hell itself she said nothing but went about her work with a most despairing face nevertheless sure as i was of her discretion i told her nothing in this great mission i would confide in no one. My choice of the two men to accompany me was easily made. They both belonged to my own department, and had many times under my direct command given proofs of their vigor, courage, and intelligence. One, John Hart, of Illinois, was a man of thirty years. The other, aged thirty-two, was Nab Walker, of Massachusetts. I could not have had better assistance." several days passed without news either of the automobile the boat or the submarine there were rumors in plenty but the police knew them to be false as to the reckless stories that appeared in the newspapers they had most of them no foundation whatever even the best journals cannot be trusted to refuse an exciting bit of news on the mere ground of its unreliability then twice in quick succession there came what seemed trustworthy reports of the man of the hour the first asserted that he had been seen on the roads of arkansas near little rock the second that he was in the very middle of lake superior unfortunately these two notices were absolutely unreconcilable for while the first gave the afternoon of june twenty sixth as the time of appearance the second set it for the evening of the same day now These two points of the United States territory are not less than eight hundred miles apart. Even granting the automobile this unthinkable speed, greater than any it had yet shown, how could it have crossed all the intervening country unseen? How could it traverse the states of Arkansas, Missouri, Iowa, and Wisconsin from end to end without any one of our agents giving us warning, without any interested person rushing to a telephone? After these two momentary appearances, if appearances they were, the machine again dropped out of knowledge. Mr. Ward did not think it worthwhile to dispatch me and my men to either point whence it had been reported. Yet since this marvellous machine seems still in existence, something must be done. The following official notice was published in every newspaper of the United States under July 3rd. It was couched in the most formal terms. During the month of April of the present year, an automobile traversed the roads of Pennsylvania, of Kentucky, of Ohio, of Tennessee, of Missouri, of Illinois, and on the 27th of May, during the race held by the American Automobile Club, it covered the course in Wisconsin. Then it disappeared. DURING THE FIRST WEEK OF JUNE A BOAT MANEUVERING AT GREAT SPEED APPEARED OFF THE COAST OF NEW ENGLAND BETWEEN CAPE COD AND CAPE SABLE, AND MORE PARTICULARLY AROUND BOSTON. THEN IT DISAPPEARED. IN THE SECOND FORTNIGHT OF THE SAME MONTH A SUBMARINE BOAT WAS RUN BENEATH THE WATERS OF LAKE Curdall IN KANSAS. THEN IT DISAPPEARED. EVERYTHING POINTS TO THE BELIEF THAT THE SAME INVENTOR MUST HAVE BUILT THESE THREE MACHINES, OR PERHAPS THAT THEY ARE THE SAME MACHINE. CONSTRUCTED SO AS TO TRAVEL BOTH ON LAND AND WATER. A PROPOSITION IS THEREFORE ADDRESSED TO THE SAID INVENTOR, WHOEVER HE BE, WITH THE AIM OF ACQUIRING THE SAID MACHINE. HE IS REQUESTED TO MAKE HIMSELF KNOWN AND TO NAME THE TERMS UPON WHICH HE WILL TREAT WITH THE UNITED STATES GOVERNMENT. HE IS ALSO REQUESTED TO ANSWER AS PROMPTLY AS POSSIBLE TO THE DEPARTMENT OF FEDERAL POLICE, WASHINGTON, D.C., UNITED STATES OF AMERICA. Such was the notice printed in large type on the front page of every newspaper. Surely it could not fail to reach the eye of him for whom it was intended, wherever he might be. He would read it. He could scarce fail to answer it in some manner. And why should he refuse such an unlimited offer? We had only to await his reply. One can easily imagine how high the public curiosity rose. From morning till night— An eager and noisy crowd pressed about the Bureau of Police, awaiting the arrival of a letter or a telegram. The best reporters were on the spot. What honor, what profit would come to the paper which was first to publish the famous news, to know at last the name and place of the undiscoverable unknown, and to know if he would agree to some bargain with the government. It goes without saying that America does things on a magnificent scale." millions would not be lacking for the inventor if necessary all the millionaires in the country would open their inexhaustible purses the day passed to how many excited and impatient people it seemed to contain more than 24 hours and each hour held far more than 60 minutes there came no answer no letter no telegram the night following there was still no news And it was the same the next day and the next there came however another result which had been fully foreseen the cables informed Europe of what the United States government had done the different powers of the old world hoped also to obtain possession of the wonderful invention why should they not struggle for an advantage so tremendous why should they not enter the contest with their millions in brief, every great power took part in the affair—France, England, Russia, Italy, Austria, Germany. Only the states of the Second Order refrained from entering, with their smaller resources, upon a useless effort. The European press published notices identical with that of the United States. The extraordinary chauffeur had only to speak to become a rival to the vanderbilts the astors the goulds the morgans and the rothschilds of every country of europe and when the mysterious inventor made no sign what attractive offers were held forth to tempt him to discard the secrecy in which he was enwrapped the whole world became a public market an auction house whence arose the most amazing bids twice a day the newspapers would add up the amounts and these kept rising from millions to millions the end came when the united states congress after a memorable session voted to offer the sum of twenty million dollars and there was not a citizen of the states of whatever rank who objected to the amount so much importance was attached to the possession of this prodigious engine of locomotion as for me i said emphatically to my old housekeeper the machine is worth even more than that evidently the other nations of the world did not think so for their bids remained below the final sum but how useless was this mighty struggle of the great rivals the inventor did not appear he did not exist he had never existed it was all a monstrous pretense of the american newspapers that at least became the announced view of the old world And so the time passed there was no further news of our man there was no response from him he appeared no more for my part not knowing what to think i commenced to lose all hope of reaching any solution to the strange affair then on the morning of the 15th of july a letter without postmark was found in the mailbox of the police bureau after the authorities had studied it It was given out to the Washington journals, which published it in facsimile in special numbers. It was couched as follows. End of chapter. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Master of the World by Jules Verne chapter 9 the second letter on board the terror july 15 to the old and new world the propositions emanating from the different governments of europe as also that which has finally been made by the united states of america need expect no other answer than this i refuse absolutely and definitely the sums offered for my invention. My machine will be neither French nor German, nor Austrian nor Russian, nor English nor American. The invention will remain my own, and I shall use it as pleases me. With it I hold control of the entire world, and there lies no force within the reach of humanity which is able to resist me under any circumstances whatsoever." Let no one attempt to seize or stop me. It is, and will be, utterly impossible. Whatever injury any one attempts against me, I will return a hundredfold. As to the money which is offered me, I despise it. I have no need of it. Moreover, on the day when it pleases me to have millions, or billions, I have but to reach out my hand, and take them that both the old and the new world realize this they can accomplish nothing against me-I can accomplish anything against them I sign this letter the master of the world chapter